Hello, this is your host, Dr. Casey Bradley, and welcome to Pig Progress's The Real P3 Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the producers around the world. This week's episode is the final part of our series featuring the swine research presented at ASAS's national meeting held in Oklahoma back in June. But it's also an opportunity for me to combine my other platform, Coffee and Curs in Animal Science, as I interview PhD student from the University of Nebraska, Dalton Obermeyer. He's combining genetics, behavior, and technology into his PhD program. But as a student and an up-and-coming leader in our industry, he has gained valuable insights about the use of technology throughout his studies and opportunities with his internships at Justall and with his master's work that he was at NC State and worked with Smithfield on some different things. So his perspectives and his thoughts will generate some interesting conversations for sure. So stay tuned. Well, hello and welcome, Dalton. How are you doing today? Oh, not too bad. How about yourself? Really great. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Yeah, so my name is Dalton Obermeyer. I am a third-year PhD student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln currently. I am from Nebraska originally. I grew up and was raised in York, Nebraska, which is an east-central town right there on the interstate. We didn't come from a commercial background, but my family was uh, came from diversified show animals, I would say. I showed horses, cattle, and pigs growing up. Very heavily involved in 4-H and FFA. From... York, I went on to the University of Nebraska for my undergrad, graduated there in 2018. From there, I went to North Carolina State University to attain my master's under the direction of Dr. Mark Knauer. Got that in 2020, and then now I made my way back to the Midwest and working on my PhD here at the university in animal breeding genetics under the direction of Dr. Benny Moog. Well, I was going to say your degree is a little bit more than just breeding and genetics from the traditional standpoint. You're also incorporating animal (sighs) behavior and technology into that. Can you kind of walk us through new tracks in the program that uh, Dr. Motes developed and what you're furthering with your PhD? Yeah. So going back to what you just alluded to, uh, I I have a lot of, uh, I would say, friends and family that always ask what I'm doing, and they don't understand why I got to go to school for 10 years to be a glorified pig doctor, essentially. (laughs) The interesting thing I I always have to explain, and it's probably going to make more sense to to people that come from uh, the the swine world or, or maybe just research and animal research and academia as a whole, but like you said, it's not really animal breeding genetics. It's it's really a hybrid between an engineered... um, engineer degree, uh, mechanical systems degree, and then some uh, genetic component in it. So Dr. Benny Moat's focus is breeding genetics, but like you alluded to, uh, we work a lot with a advanced computer vision system called NewTrack, which was developed, I believe uh, they got the first grant for that back in, don't quote me on this, I want to say 2016. The, the system has came a long, long ways in those years. Uh, I remember working with it when I was an undergrad and we actually used Xbox 360s above the pens, uh, the the gaming devices. And now we are installing Lorex uh, 4K Ultra HD cameras above the pens. So it's came a long ways and I could talk all day about NewTrack, but essentially it, it just allows for individual animal ID, individual identification, uh, in, in a group house pen. And then we could, uh, 
we could track activities and, and certain traits with these animals that before this technology, uh, we wouldn't be able to objectively quantify, for instance, uh, distance walked or time lane, time spent at the feeder, et cetera, and et cetera. So again, going back to, to your original uh, point there it, it, is that I'm not really, you know, I have genetic components to this, but it's a lot evolved around this new track program. Absolutely. Awesome. And that's kind of hard to explain as well as I find, well, what do you do in, in simple terms? I'm trained as a nutritionist, but I do a lot of things similar to you getting to coding. I get into model development. I get into podcast marketing. And, and so it's been a fun career to see how it's changed. And it's not a traditional sense of a nutritionist today for me. Yeah. But let's go into some of your experiences because I first learned about you and have heard just all speak very highly of you throughout. And from what I understand, you've done two different internships with just all in the past. Can you kind of explain some of that research that you've yeah. worked on? I have hour long presentations on both internships, but, but for the sake of the podcast, uh, I'll keep this pretty short and sweet. But so like I uh, said earlier, I graduated from the University of Nebraska with my bachelor's in 2018. From there, I actually went literally the week after graduation, flew up uh, a one-way flight to Ontario, Canada, where I uh, did a commercial research project over the summer with Gestal. Uh, that was my first exposure with Gestal. Uh, I was familiar with Dr. Hyatt Frobos through some livestock judging. He reached out to my advisor, uh, undergrad advisor, Dr. Brad Bennett and Dr. Benny Moat had been working with Benny a little bit as an undergrad, doing some undergrad research and uh, helping downstairs with some pigs, with some other professors too. But the, the first project was we were looking at the effect of hydraulic lift crates on sow performance and pigler survival. So uh, if you're not you know, familiar with hydraulic lift crates, uh, quickly Google it. I'm sure uh, a Google search will yield a better explanation for that than what I could say uh, You know, over over some words here, but that was a 12-week trial up at a 5,000-head commercial farm, and we, uh, again, looked at the effect of hydraulic lift crates on sow performance and piglet survival. As far as the sow performance, we didn't see any increase or decrease with the inclusion of the hydraulic lift crates, uh, but with piglet survival, we saw a decrease in pre-winning mortality by 0.41 piglets in comparison to your traditional or our control group which was a 3.1% drop off in pre-weaning mortalities prior to weaning there. And then uh, we did some economic analysis. And again, this could have changed a little bit uh, with the competition and just uh, inflation and stuff like that. But return on investment at the time was about 3.71 years or right under four years uh, without the maintenance factor um, put into that. And I know we had discussed earlier about maintenance with those uh, these specific crates were new in. Uh, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that company right, but the maintenance was very minimal on those. So uh, I was a big fan of those. Never saw it in the U.S. prior to that. But that was my first project. And then the summer after my next degree in 2020, after my master's, uh, I went, came back to Nebraska and had a project with them actually in Nebraska Gestal, again, that is, at a standard nutrition services South farm. A uh, quick thank you to Dr. Bart Borg. Uh, and then we looked at uh, two main or two trials. The main one was where we did some feeding time on set of parturition. So typically in South farms, we like to feed at 7 a.m., 6 a.m., whenever basically the first person gets in there, it could turn on your, your feed line, right, and make sure the hoppers aren't bridged up and stuff like that. 
with some uh, preliminary, I would say, not necessarily a pilot study that led us into this, but looking at what they do in the cattle industry with uh, Dr. Peter Thiel's, I would say, methodology of feeding heifers. He's an old Canadian farmer back in the 1970s that started feeding heifers at night in hopes that they would start to calve during the day. Uh, we kind of, and that's, you know, commercially adapted, you know, across all cattlemen a lot in the Midwest, especially where it's cold at nights too. But we tried to decide to do that with pigs. Uh, 2 a.m. was just kind of uh, throwing a dart at a dartboard there. Uh, we did 24-hour surveillance, and we looked at all farrowing traits, uh, specifically your stillborn percentages, your total farrowing time, duration of farrowing, onset of farrowing, piglet interval, and, and all those fun things. And we were able, with uh, feeding sows at 2 a.m. versus 7 a.m., we were actually able to move up farrowings just right under an hour in the day. So 12 p.m. versus 1 p.m. And then with the inclusion of duration, farrowing duration in that, we were able to complete farrowings by roughly one and a half hours earlier in the day, thus providing more assistance because the farm staff was going to be there. And ultimately, we saw a decrease in stillborn percentages with that treatment group, again, fed at 2 a.m. compared to 7 a.m. of a degree p- decrease of stillborn percentages by 1.34%. And then we got done with that trial. We got to the uh, the statistical power that we thought we needed in order to garner some good results there, which we did. And then we started a pilot study uh, with feed repetitions on stillborn percentages. So Again, traditionally, sows are fed once, maybe twice a day when they enter the farrowing room prior to parturition. Uh, and we decided to look at three different groups, either once a day feeding, twice a day feeding, or six times a day feeding. Again, with the Gestalt solo lactational unit, we're able to do that. You just put a setting in there. At midnight, it switches over. We don't have to touch a single thing. It's actually really nice. It makes not to put a plug in here intentionally for Gestalt, but without, you know, electronic feeders like this, uh, none of this research and stuff like this could happen, which is why we're starting to see more and more of it is because technology, again, going back to new track is allowing for some of this research to take place for us to look at some management practices that could be changed that ultimately we couldn't do in the past just because we didn't have the, the means or the technology to do so. But we, we only had 330 sows, again, on that feeding repetition trial, that, that pilot study, as I would like to call it, the last few weeks we were at that farm. We did linear regressions. I did, uh, so this would be a plus and minus from the population average of stillborns. Uh, the once-a-day feeding was plus 1.2% on stillborns. The twice-a-day feeding was minus 0.37% on stillborns. And the six-time-a-day was minus 0.36% on stillborns. Again, uh, with uh, the p-values there were not, you know, not what we were looking for, but it's a pilot study. We wanted to see if we were seeing difference. Ultimately, this goes back to energy level at the sow or energy at the sow level, excuse me. Long story short, pigs absorb starch in the form of glucose in their small intestines. That process takes four to six hours. If we go in and feed them at 6 a.m. and they start feeding at 4 a.m. the next day, that means they went almost, you know, they went 20 hours without feed. They're not going to have as much energy, you know, if they were fed two hours prior to farrowing. During the summer, which this project was, we start to see those temperatures rise and the relative humidity rise. We're starting to see some more, uh, some more fatigue during uh, farrowing, which ultimately, again, leads to more 
you know, more occurrences of stillborn. So that's a brief uh, overview of those projects. Uh, there's quick type in my name and just all alongside of it. I've had the, the privilege to, <laughs> to summarize the, a lot of these projects uh, more than once, uh, uh, which I'm thankful for those opportunities, but really cool project. Awesome company to work with. Uh, can't say enough good things about them. They were uh, more than willing to listen to some uh, undergrad or some uh, master student that thinks he knows everything, uh, his input on, on some things with these trials and uh, very, very fortunate to get in contact with them. So again, my hat's off to that company. It was really fun working those two summers. So, Yeah. And if it makes you feel any better, once I have a student, we're supposed to be following up on your pilot study. So I do owe just all that trial as well. Interesting yeah. to know, even though it was a pilot based trial, yeah. The customer that I work with that has the just all solos in lactation, um, I do believe it's a solo. Quote, yeah. Don't quote me, Dr. Frobos, <laughs> if I got that wrong, but they feed five times a day. And so yeah. it's really interesting to kind of see. And, you know, and there's a lot of things you got to think about executing those trials because I would have, you know, I should have known this, but yeah, you can't have the same treatment in the same room. And so when you're getting those replications, now the sow is not your rep, but the room's your rep. And so it does take a different power analysis and things to think about, but technology allows us to do that because there's no way Mm -mm. from a human perspective, we're lucky if we can get two, two times feeding a day and, and filling up hoppers and things. So, yeah. Yeah. And then the number of feeding really, again, we just did once, twice, and six, we only did three we didn't have room as our uh, experimental unit. We did have the sow, uh, but like you just alluded to, uh, with with the gestal unit, with that stimulation period of them getting up and down and stuff like that, it is kind of a confounding variable of feeding them within the room. So yeah, that's a good point. We would ultimately like to do that if we would have had more time, but we just, again, this mm-hmm. was, we had a f- few more weeks at the, the farm while we were waiting to get some weaning weights off that last group on that main trial. And, uh, you know, we had sows there, we had the technology, why not try something? So, you know, looking at some previous research, I, I think some good results are going to come from that. I think uh, we're going to see some industry adaptation come from uh, some of these research trials with Gestalt specifically. So, Well, and I didn't know the backstory of it coming from the cattle industry. So I think that's very interesting to know that as well, is that a lot of times we get in our silos or bubbles and we don't look past yeah. that. So very, very good point. Yep. The Sunswine Group is dedicated to serving individuals and companies involved in animal agriculture. The Real P3 is one example of our outreach to the industry. But we have also developed coffee and careers in animal science. Through this program, we mentor future animal scientists as they navigate their careers while in college or new to the industry. Additionally, the Sunspine Group is at the forefront of monogastric research and data analytics through our PigISMO platform. We thank Pig Progress for this opportunity to partner and serve our industry here on the Real P3. To learn more about the Sunspine Group and how we can serve you best, visit our website, www.thesunswinegroup.com. Let's get into, um, this is a special for ASAS's national meetings, and you presented some of your genetic work looking at behavior. Can you kind of walk us through the goals of that research trial and kind of explain what you did a little bit and what your PhD is going to focus on? 
Yeah, that specific trial was kind of uh, basically a headliner for my main trial that's going to take place. Uh, the specific trial that you were just alluding to that I presented on and at the ASAS uh, National Conference there in Oklahoma City earlier this summer, uh, we looked at the impact of SIRE EBV for growth and feed intake on progeny activity level. So essentially, we had four different groups, high intake, high growth high intake, low growth, low intake, high growth, and low intake, low growth. Four different sire groups. Each of those sire groups were pooled semen from eight different boars that were provided by DNA Genetics, their uh, Duroc Line 600, if I remember off the top of my head. With those four groups, uh, we had uh, 200 total pigs that went through uh, the nursery and finisher stages. Right as soon as they were moved in nursery, they were underneath of our new track cameras. Essentially, we wanted to look at the activity and behavior traits associated with those different groups. Had some hypothesis before the trial. You would think uh, your high intake, high growth, uh, your pigs that are growing faster. Basically, the whole reason, again, maybe taking a step back here is when we're looking at these activity components, we're really trying to figure out specifically, there's a bunch of behavior and animal welfare components to this, but this specific trial is more geared towards residual feed intake. So uh, the amount of feed, amount of feed above or expected what that pig is supposed to consume at that point in their lifetime, which is typically, you know, uh, figured out between their growth rate and basically body size and back fat, centimeters of back fat there. So, but we don't really know what what they're doing as far as activity and calorie expenditure. So you can put it back to human terms or anything else is it, you know, if I'm sitting on the couch for two straight days and eat the same amount of food as when I'm sitting on the couch, or if I'm out working on a pasture for two days, eat the same amount of food, I'm probably, you know, if I do that long term, I'm going to weigh more if I'm, you know, not doing any activity. So same thing could be presented with pigs. However, before new track, uh, we're unable to see, you know, what these individual pigs are actually doing for activity levels. We can maybe put a subjective score of one to nine on them and maybe do some sort of scoring like that with docility, but there's no way of accurately identifying. So with that project, we did, our hypothesis was correct. Uh, we did, uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head here. I apologize for that. But but the high intake, high growth pigs did significantly walk less per day. They spent uh, less time at the feeder and they spent more time lying than they did standing and sitting compared to the rest of the contemporary groups included in that study. And then uh, we kind of went back and looked at the performance traits. We looked at the carcass traits. And then we also looked at just basically average daily gain and then growth. And obviously uh, that was in their favor as well. And, you know, we could expect that going back to the sire EBVs with that. So this whole main goal here is to develop a holistic summary for the activity component in residual feed intake, which leads me into my dissertation project, again, with DNA genetics, that's just starting, uh, the, the gears are just starting to turn on data collection for that. That's actually taking place. Fortunately enough, we put cameras up at their InSight Performance Test Center for their bores. And we, we really, again, want to develop a holistic summary for the activity component residual feed intake. We want to see if basically we can create a new phenotype that encompasses multiple phenotypes that we've been including in our selection indexes in the past. And with that, you know, we can be more accurate in, you know, describing how these animals are going to grow, 
how fast there's going to grow, any behavioral traits and animal welfare things associated with that, and then hopefully be able to apply that back. And we can see the same impact uh, down the line as far as their progeny goes. So I can get more into the details of it if you want, but it's basically we're, we're trying to you know answer a question that we couldn't before this technology and before these mm-hmm. cameras were allowing us to do so. So it's really not that complex. If you take a step back and think about you know, I can go walk down the hallway at universities across the country and I can look at some of these posters and not really understand how they even thought to look at some of this stuff. But the, you take a step back and look at a project like this. It's like, OK, this makes sense. We're trying to get our pigs to eat less feed because feed cost accounts for 70 percent of the total variable cost in producing pork. You know, we're trying to make them eat less, but we don't want to sacrifice pork output. So we have to make them more efficient. Genetically, we've already done that because we've had that technology. Management-wise, we've already done that because we've been thinking about that for a while. But now if we can take a step back and maybe look at some other components, such as activity, with this technology, it's really not that complicated. It's just fortunately enough, we have the technology now to do it. Well, it, your data was a little eye-opening because as nutritionists, we all love to talk about precision nutrition and as you probably may or may not know, I'm a very close to gestal and very under precision is if we're going to be precise and we're going to be carbon neutral, your project is very essential of creating different phenotype traits to put into our genetic selection models. But I'm concerned with the fact that you had four different EBV sire borers pulled. So I'm getting DNA 600s on the farm I worked with. And now you're telling me from your data I probably, from a maintenance perspective, need to feed my animals differently out of those populations I have today. And then going in and finding those animals and and then, you know, and then tailoring a diet to the average is just probably not what we need to do for the future for nutrition. You're looking at activity level from, you know, using different technologies. And I'm looking at your data saying we've been feeding our pigs wrong all along. We really Mm -hmm. need to know the genetic history, maybe pulling 20 boars into a dose is maybe not ideal from that standpoint, individually identifying the litters and understanding their genetic traits, and then trying to deliver the right diet at the right time to those different populations. Yeah, I 100% agree. I I think our selection indexes, if we look at them uh, in 2015 versus what we're, they're going to look like in 2040, a lot of those phenotypes are, you know, they might encompass some of the same things, but the names and, and where they come from and how we, you know, encompass those phenotypes, it's going to change drastically. And I do believe for the better, I, I do believe we're going to see uh, not only from the producer's profitability standpoint, but but more so the animal welfare and the ecosystem standpoint as well. So uh, again, with a- anything with developing new phenotypes that can encompass multiple phenotypes we've used in the past, I- I- I'm such a big fan of that. And that's what ultimately is keeping me, you know, going to school for 10 years is, is to keep working in that field. I, I just think it's so interesting, especially again, going back, I can't say it enough with, with this new technology. I- I'm just so fortunate to be in grad school in 2022 right now and being able to just be exposed to all this different stuff that's getting thrown at the table here. There's so much good research going on across the country right now. It's a really exciting time. Well, awesome. Let's talk about technology. We, We both live it. We both preach it. 
um, you're adding it to your research on for genetics yep. of all things and nutrition. So what is stopping technology? As you said, the hydraulic lift crates, they never really made it out of Canada. They're not being incorporated here. We very rarely look at different crate designs in the farrowing house. Yeah, yeah. Let alone, you know, a lot of producers saying that I can't afford to put in technology like just dolls, but yet complain we have a labor shortage. What is yep. stopping technology from getting implemented in the swine industry? So I, I probably don't, you know, again, this is this is coming from a 26 year old that that didn't grow up on a commercial farm and doesn't have family ties to things. Uh, uh, my dad sells underground pipe and my mom is uh, a CEO of a, of a hospital in York, Nebraska. So so, you know, just because it's my opinion doesn't mean uh, that it's right or wrong. I'm going to get in front of that before uh, <laughs> I say what I what I do think, you know, hopefully people can understand where I'm coming from. But but I think it's a people. Not, I don't want to call it an issue. I just think it's a hurdle. It's a people issue. And I, and I don't ever want to knock on you know, any generation before us because of, of the progress they were able to make in their generations and, and, and the improvements for, for the livestock industry that they were able to make. To make. Unfortunately, we, we do have some restraints. And again, this doesn't apply to everybody in, you know, older age group, older farmers that necessarily didn't have that technology, especially in real rural areas of the world. But I do think it's the people. And I, I think uh, the, the big excuse of the, and I don't want to call it excuse because I do know, uh, you know, it's a major issue is the labor. A lot of this technology is such, you know, we're going to talk about Gestol because both of us have ties to Gestol here, but that's just one example of a company that, you know, can make your life so much easier just from a management and labor standpoint with, with electronic feeders, especially in the gestation side too. those gestation feeders and, and the printed reports every morning. And I've seen farmer or farm managers or, or gestation managers grab that sheet, uh, a list of sows of sows that didn't eat or sows that weren't active the day before. And then go out there and, you know, be able to assess the situation and treat them. I mean, the time spent looking at each individual in a 5,000 head a sow farm is, is not very much. It's, it's down to the seconds. It's down under 10 seconds for 5,000 sows, especially if they're not in farrowing. So if we just kind of lean on some of this technology and allow it to do our workforce and then go give attention to those sows that need it, rather than looking at the whole group. Uh, I think that's just one example of how technology can help from that labor standpoint. I think the, the, the cost object right now is difficult. I think there's a few difficult situations with that. I think one of those, uh, maybe nothing to do with the animals, but probably more with the, the family pyramid. We're seeing family farms uh, in each industry go away from family farms. They're becoming production partners. Some kids uh, just don't like being on a farm. There's too many exciting things going on in the world. And that, that's completely fine. Uh, you can go do a bunch of fun things and interesting things in the world, even if it doesn't involve agriculture, that's fine. But that puts that family, that puts that operation in the tight spot. And then that's going to make it harder for that older generation to want to invest more and be more progressive in those farms. And this is more than just the swine industry, if you ask me. And I think uh, it's harder for them to want to invest financially and in the farm if they don't know, you know that it's getting passed down. I think that's one of the key things. 
And then also, uh, I, I think the U.S., you know, the American farmer is, is so much on, well, show me if it works before I'm going to go do it. I mean, the American farmer is, you know, exposed to so many competitive markets and so many aspects of whatever they're raising from the crop side to the animal side. They're not just going to, you know, salesman comes up, smiles real big at them. They're not going to put that in their farm. They're going to shake your hand and be cordial to you. But they're, you know, Penn's got to meet the paper for these guys to make it work. And, and I think we're still, you know, if we look at where the technology's at, again, going back to the Gestalt side, we're, we're seeing a company that started many years ago that's really met some traction. And I, I you know, don't want to quote anybody from there, but but I'm, you know, the way it sounds is companies are like that are booming right now. Business is booming. The I, other I issue I see time, yeah. is, you know, you made some really good points there of if there's people listening and how do I sell into swine producers? How do I get my technology in? How do I change their mindset of how they they manage things? And I work on a lot of different innovation projects for companies and I'm developing my own tech and, and data management tools. The other thing is when we look at putting cameras in or just all feeders, we do still have the traditional family-owned farms, but we also have a lot of situations to where one entity owns the farm or you have a set of investors and somebody else owns the pigs and leases the facility. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at those dynamics as well in our industry that we have contract growers, we have land and barn owners, and we have people who lease those to raise pigs. That goes into a lot. And a lot of these people who own the facilities don't get paid extra Mm -hmm. to put in extra cameras or a new, you know, box to put in to have enough breakers. But, you know, things like that. We don't consider a lot of that. And, you know, a lot of times it's hard to even in my mind to retrofit some of these facilities because you talk about these cameras. I've worked with cameras. If you don't have enough ceiling heights to get the angle that you need. (laughs) It doesn't matter. And so when you look in, let's just put a camera in here and do this. And I'm like, well, you have to retrofit it. You have this is ventilation set up to work this way. Where are you going to put the camera in? How are you going to get the angle? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that stuff. I just kind of want to, you touched on some great stuff, but there's other things to that Mm -hmm. hurdle to get in. And like you said, that investment. And if, you know, we have more consistent market prices and stuff. Traditionally, I think we would expand, and that's where everybody's saying is the markets were right for people to expand mm-hmm. their sow herds, but we don't see that. And I think, yeah. you know, instead, I think some producers are going to look at, you know, talking to a lot of them, even with Prop 12 and different things going backwards, but that could leave the opportunity is at least one producer I work with, he's implemented technology to save on mm-hmm. labor, even though he yeah. reduced his sow herd from a family farm in that transition there, but, you know, with hopes of wanting to expand again, but he, you know, to manage it properly, you know, he put in technology and just retrofitted one facility versus trying to retrofit two and keep the labor going. So making more smart decisions of how Mm -hmm. we use labor and technology together. I, I see a lot of that going on. Yeah. Quick note on that. The prop 12 deal is, is uh, if we truly are stewardess of, of the animals and it's our duty to be raising safe, uh, secure, you know, protein sources for the rest of the world population, uh, you know, some of the stuff in these uh, restraints and, and some of these like like Prop 12 and some other things that are now getting introduced, you know, they all have a negative connotation to them uh, from the producer side. But 
some of that stuff's out of our control. And like you just alluded to, and I really appreciate it because not a lot of people do within the industry is look at the positive outcomes that could come from this. You know, your hands are tied behind your back. We're going to have to adjust uh, consumer wins at the end of the day, you know, should be, you know, consumer is going to drive everything. Our main concern should be about the animals and then probably about our pocketbook. I know, you know, that's speaking from somebody that doesn't own a single pig uh, right now. I get that. But ideally, that's the way, you know, those deals should work. It should benefit that. Unfortunately, we're seeing, you know, maybe the wrong people that are drawing up some of these propositions. But I do think that is, you know, an opportunity to install some of these technologies. Absolutely. And I, I do applaud you for saying that, too. So. Well, I appreciate that because one of my frustrations I can publicly say is the total opposition we had of Prop 12. And I, I do realize because we can start with Prop 12 and then we're going to end up like the Netherlands, yeah. Denmark area to where if they have to reduce their nitrogen emissions, we're talking about a devastation to their industry. So, you know, you give a little and they'll, they'll want yeah. more, but... Mm-hmm. I look at Prop 12 as an opportunity to improve sow lameness, uh, improve mm-hmm. our husbandry standards. You know, I went into academics like you. I think we have something in common. We used to have splay laid, laid pigs when I worked for New Fashion Pork, and the only option we had was euthanasia with a C-section, and the sow mm-hmm. didn't make it. And I said, is this the best we can do? And I devoted my career and, and life, my PhD to lameness and longevity and working with Zimpro on that component. But I look at our industry today and we've not gone forward or made any progress. We've gone backwards on lameness, survivability, and uh, yeah. It's- Diminishing returns of uh, of some different driving factors is what I would just call summarize all that personally. That's the way I look at it. We're yeah. seeing a lot of diminishing returns from from the main things that make your pocketbook better. Which again, I you know, money's great. I get that. Uh, we got to stay in the positive, but we're seeing some diminishing returns get worse and worse as we keep trying to, you know, thread the needle to make our production numbers that much better. Is we're maybe not encompassing everything with these animals, and we're asking an animal that uh, you know wasn't intended to be. 33 to 35 max, you know, PSY a year, we're asking them to do things that, you know, God had no intention of doing. We're seeing some diminishing returns and how we overcome those obstacles is really going to describe, you know, our industry as a whole in the next 10 years from a mortality standpoint. And you work a lot with longevity and mortality causes and reasons. I work a lot with the, the piglet survival and stuff and, the mortality deal in the next 10 years on the swine industry just has to has to get figured out. I mean, there's no if, ands, or what's about it. I don't care if that means production numbers got to go down. We, we got to figure out how to save more lives out there. That's just plain and simple. That's just a fact, if you ask me. Well, awesome. I think we could talk about this forever, but to, to keep it, our audience in mind, before we go, I'm really excited about the future with professionals like you coming out of college. I think... Yeah. Having leaders like you step up and and be vocal about some of these things will really make a difference. But Mm -hmm. in tradition, I'm going to turn the table and let you ask me a question or any last minute thoughts you want to leave with our audience. You've left us with a lot of great pieces so far. 
Yeah, well, I have a, you know, uh, anybody that knows me on a personal note knows I have a lot of thoughts and opinions about a lot of things, uh, and I'm not afraid to voice them. So I'm sure I've talked enough. I, I do have a simple question, and I, I don't know what the demographic exactly is of your listeners, uh, but I found myself, you know, as a, a young master student transitioning from that undergraduate to graduate lifestyle and, I guess, experience I guess uh, now as you took it, you know, you can have some time to now process, you know, I'm still, I'm still in the depths of it. You know, I'm just starting with comps here in the next semester and and starting writing my dissertation. You know, my life's just starting to get real fun for all those that have had that experience. My question to you, what would you tell, let's say a, a first, they're just starting their second month of their master's student or master's degree in in swine research, whether that's nutrition, genetics, physiology, reproduction, anything like that. How would you, you know, tell them to navigate what would be best for themselves from a personal side as well as a professional side? It's kind of too late for me to make any changes, but you know, a lot of grad students will come to ask me, like, what'd you do? And I'm like, well, here's an example of what I did, but you know, it worked for me. You know, I feel like I'm doing okay. But I guess maybe from from your perspective, and hopefully there is some grad students and prospective grad students that are listening, what would you tell them to do and what would ultimately help them succeed again, personally and professionally down the road? What are some key things they can focus on or or opportunities they can take, I guess, would be my main question, because I have, again, I had a lot of kids ask me that. I'm like, well, this is what I did, but I, I have not a lot of other examples, so I'd love well, to hear that. I, I appreciate you bringing in my other passion. Of course, my coffee and crews and animal science. That's kind of what we do is mentor students and like, what would you do? And I would say, you know, your career path so far has been to me ideal. You have a lot of practical hands-on experience. You've looked worked on some large-scale operations. You've gone to two different universities. So you diversified your education from that standpoint. But you're doing a lot of things right. You have genetics you have nutrition and you have technology, computer coding, you have all that into your program today. So I'm really excited to hear that you have that diverse skill set. As I thought it was funny, um, I'm going to quote Brad James. He was my boss at Combat Feeds. And he says, you know, veterinarians, they just skim the surface. And nutritionists, we we dig deep into one mm-hmm. area. And, you know, I listened to... Uh, Tyson um, is his astrophysicist. He has a podcast and I can't think of what it's called, but, you know, he really, he's talked about academics of that is how we were. We'd get in our bubble and we'd dive really deep traditionally in a master's degree or PhD program. And he's really thinking it's more complex. We're going to be a broader science. So if we thought about science back in the day, we studied everything, right? The early uh, astronomers and uh, biologists and things, they studied a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And then we segmented into these different specialties. And he he thinks that, as Neil deGrasse Tyson is what it is. So he thinks that we'll come back to more of a holistic um, scientific approach. And so listening to your experiences and your ability to talk on multiple topics, you hit economics, you hit production numbers, you hit technology you hit people, you understand the different components that make this wine industry work. And I think we have to get outside of this box to where I'm just a geneticist or I'm just a nutritionist studying amino acids. I can take my field of nutrition. I think we also need to look at other species. So that was the best thing I got in my career more so than in college. Um, I did some in college as well, but I got to work with poultry. I got to work with Mm -hmm. cattle. 
there's a lot we can learn from different species. Mm-hmm. We can't stay in our box. Uh-huh. I suggest even um, one thing I don't think you've done, but besides Canada, I don't consider that international experience yeah, in no, Ontario, yeah, right? Yeah. So I, I grew up very close to Ontario. They still got McDonald's and Starbucks right there. Yeah, but, you know, an international experience, if you can go study abroad, mm-hmm go a year or something to a different school. I think those components will really open your eyes of how research, how the industry is different. That was the best experience I had with AB Vista was going internationally. And we get the connotation around the world as Americans that we're, you know, egotistical. We know everything. It's got to be our way. And I'm like, no, I've been exposed to know, but I can also say, and I've had these conversations and, you know, talking to people in the Philippines, well, we can't raise pigs like you do in the U S. And I said, you do realize that I have raised pigs out on dirt and yeah. open fronts and mm-hmm. I've raised pigs in modernly commercial mm-hmm. facilities. And there's a lot of principles through all of that that we can learn from. And that's really the, the goal of the real P3 is to share our experiences. Where did we fail? Where did we succeed? Can we take some of that information and apply it in my operation? No matter if I'm in the UK, I'm in Spain, I'm in Australia, I'm in Japan. I have listeners in Japan. I have listeners in South America. It's taking these experiences and these thoughts and ideas and implementing and trying things. And that's really my passion. And I hope people can do that in their careers and be open-minded because I tell a lot of people I had... um, I'm an introvert. I went into animal science because I loved animals, not people. (laughs) And the animals taught me to love people. And so Mm -hmm. push yourself outside of your box. Know your limitations. Know what you like to do and what you don't. And see each year if you can push yourself more. Volunteer to help somebody with their trials to learn what they're doing. Go If you go to meetings, just don't hang out with your group. Go to a beef talk or go. And I, that's what I did. I was, uh, I was interested in a topic that the, the beef industry is doing on melatonin. So I went to listen to the melatonin presentations at ASAS as well. And in the swine related stuff. Um, normally I don't go to genetics. I was quite surprised, not only with your presentation, but a couple other ones. It's really getting out of your comfort zone because I don't think that mindset that, yeah, we as scientists have to dig deep into problems but we have to also realize that nutrition or genetics or management or physiology, whatever we study is not going to solve it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. Much better than <laughs> much better advice is uh, yeah. Every, everything encompassing together. It, it creates a, it, all these different puzzle pieces. If you want to say it like that, what you did creates a whole puzzle. And I think you have to understand what the whole puzzle is going to look at before you can really dive deep into each of these little pieces. So you hit the nail on the head there for me. So I completely agree with that. Well, Dalton, I'm really excited to hear how your research ends up and question of how I'm going to manage the DNA 600s moving forward. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and that, that was no knock on Anything with them, it just uh, animals are different, and we have to now that we can observe some of these differences with, uh, especially uh, behaviors and activities. And going back to new track, uh, it's it's going to change some things. It's going to change some uh, uh, some requirements at the feed level. It's going to change some requirements at the management level. Uh, some changes, but hopefully I, these changes are, are good. You know, yeah. No knock on DNA. I appreciate that they're funding this research or at least giving you access to the animals Absolutely. To, get it, to get it yes. done. 
Um, and I hope that the other genetic companies start doing the same because yes. we are going to get questioned on animal welfare. And if they already have this in their index and, and they prove that we're, you know, going that route, I think that's just even more power for us in these discussions that we have. So thank you, Dalton, for your time. And I wish you the luck in your PhD. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, I'm really excited about what Dalton does with his career. I am so impressed with him so far with what he's accomplished, his thoughts around the industry and where his generation and up and coming leaders like himself will change our industry for the better. And as always, if you get a chance, hug a pig for me today. <laughs>